join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard lessons from the best and brightest the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are on your personal path. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. Now here's your host, John Johnson. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com and get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other things, reasonable conversations, because that's what the Internet's good for, at facebook.com slash ballisticradio. Hey, Joe. What's up? Um... Nothing. Just just kind of here. Trudging on through. Yeah. So what you wearing? What you doing? That's not what I asked. Anyway. Um, oh, it got creepy. Hey, guess what? What's that? This segment's brought to you by Centurion Arms. Even if you're just a cook, a lowly, lowly cook, or you call in tactical nukes from your couch every night with ease, you need to know that your life-saving equipment is going to work. And Centurion Arms knows it, too. Veteran-owned and operated, Centurion Arms is dedicated to producing firearms, parts, and accessories with an outstanding level of quality, functionality, and precision at prices you can afford. Whether you just need a new rail or a barrel or something else to finish off your latest build, or maybe you want to take all the guesswork out and buy a complete rifle, Centurion Arms has got what you need and knows that when you need it, you need it to work. Visit CenturionArms.com today to check out all their awesome products. Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. So joining us, it's the man, the myth, the legend, the good doctor, the William April. Hey, William, how's it going, man? Well, it's been a, great. It's been a while. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's it's been, uh, it, I think it's been last year since I've had you on, and like I, I was kind of just going over list of guests and you know there's there's certain people that i like having on multiple times you definitely fall into that category um and i think you okay, I, I think that you are very close to tied with either claude werner or chuck haggard for for most appearances on the show i would actually have to to go back and look and see uh see who wins i think maybe claude wins but well, it's certainly flattering. Those uh, those are guys who know some stuff. Well, you know some stuff too. I've I've discovered you're you're certainly uh, someone that I pay attention to whenever you say anything. But for those that um, maybe are new to the show or just haven't caught your previous appearances or just don't know who you are for whatever reason, um, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a, a mid career mental health professional from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, practice uh, psychology down here and. Um, but I'm also the principal in a uh, little company called April Risk Consulting, where we specialize in um, understanding violent criminal actors and their mindset and the sort of pre-kinetic phase of engagement with uh, with criminals in the world. We're trying to understand uh, how they act and what they do so that we can get ready to better defend ourselves. And I do a fair bit of training around the country in, in that area of the house. And um uh, during the week, I uh, see crazy people, and during the <laughs> during the weekends, I teach classes. Well, hey, that works. Um, now, so I've I've taken your unthinkable coursework, uh, man, um, 
I want to say a couple times. I, I actually want to. It's like somewhere between four to six. I don't know. Uh, a lot. I've taken it a lot, and and I always pick my, up. My, go ahead. My nickname for you is Car Payment. <laughs> Hi, hey. <That's, laughs> hey, you know, you I get the old reliables. Well, you know, I uh, I always pick something new up from it, which is which is great. So I guess my there's actually a couple of things that I'd like to talk about today, but we'll start here. Um. You know, so I've been inside of the question of preparing for and mitigating the risks associated with preparing for violence uh, for almost a decade now. Not quite, um, but for a little while now. And, and certainly not the the breadth of experience that, that quite a few other people have. But I, I've been doing this for a little while now. And I'm curious, you've been doing it for longer than I have been doing it. Um, is there been anything inside of the pre-kinetic phase of, of the question that has changed over the course of, I guess, your experience in this, either in your thoughts or opinions, how you teach it, or just well, I, like the social interactions and, and how those have changed? Have they affected anything? Yeah, something I think that's, that's very interesting that's changed in the culture is that there's no disputing that the U.S. crime rate is significantly falling. Um, it goes through cycles, and, and we're in a kind of a low cycle now. But strangely enough, the risk of violence from non-criminals is higher than it's ever been, in my memory. Um, so it's a little odd to think about your preparation matrix because you know, instead of dealing with, you know, thinking, okay, the first and foremost thing in my mind is street crime, right? Somebody jumping out behind a dumpster and hit me with a socket wrench. Now, instead, it might be a kid in a black hoodie smacking you with a bike lock as you walk past a political rally. Uh, there's more ambient violence from non-criminals. I mean, I don't want to use that word non-criminal if they're breaking the law, but, but you wouldn't have thought five years ago, six years ago, where well, the biggest risk that I'm going to face today is getting cracked in the head by an Antifa guy as I walk to my coffee shop. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a change. And um, you know, it's it's a whole different method of uh, of looking at the world and judging risk. Um, you know, the ambient risk of going to a you know political rally used to be quite low. I mean, it was never really crossed your mind that violence would erupt. Boy, that's not true now. Um, and that's a that's a big change. I think we've got to wrap our minds around. And also, getting caught in demonstrations that you know can turn on a dime into riots and real urban unrest. It hasn't been that way for quite some time. You know, there have been episodic ones, of course, like the Rodney King riots. But to have it be so widespread and and, and so um, pervasive in downtown areas and, and kind of creates a risk pool that can spill on you when you're normally thinking about other kinds of risks. So that's a, that's a big change, lower risk from criminals and higher risk from non-criminals. Well, and that's, that's something that I actually think, you know, bears some discussion because, you know, when – when this topic sort of comes up, I, I think that making the distinction between, you know, your con concept of like a violent criminal actor, uh, which is, you know, you could explain much better than I will, so I'm not going to try and sum up. Uh, and in fact, I, I, I'll have you explain. Uh, but, but, you know, having that be your primary concern and then, you know, viewing people – you know, violent protesters, violent demonstrators as the same animal, I, I think that's something folks don't consider is that if we look back at history, you know, and we can look back into the, like, 
forming of our country, what I guess what determines criminal action or not is who wins. And I know that sounds really weird, but I'm, you know, it's very easy for me to look at everything going on, say that I don't agree with methods or I don't agree with the agenda that's being pushed. So these people are just thugs and criminals. Uh, Whereas if you shift your thinking, these people could be socially conscious individuals that are fighting against tyranny. I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but I think that understanding that maybe that's where they're coming from in their minds is, is something worth discussing, or, or do you think that's not worth discussing? Oh, no, I do. I mean, you've got, you've got several movements piled on each other like a layer cake. And I think down at the bottom, there's a layer that just everybody can agree on. I don't think anybody thinks protesting the death of the Minnesota uh, subject is a bad thing to do. That was a grotesque piece of police work, and someone died. Um, People have a right to be upset about that. Um, But then layered on top of that, there are people who have very different agendas. They want to show up and just start trouble. Um, Here in my town, there there are protest tourists. You see these kids walking down the street. They came here to protest. Well, the problem is they're screwing up our protests. The only protests that we've had here that have turned even slightly violent have been because there were outside agitators. I know that sounds terribly 60s to say, but there are outside agitators. Uh, five people were arrested on the one night things got a little sporty, three of them from out of town. Right. Well, go back, go back to your own hometown and make trouble. You know, it just, uh, that's sort of, uh, you know, protest tourism. And I don't view that as legitimate. Um, if they want to address conditions in their hometown, they should stay in their hometown, not take a vacation and protest in someone else's town. Right. Um, and so, you got then you've got straight up criminals who will always follow behind unrest, a little bit like a pilot fish finds uh, swims behind a shark, right? They just they just want to break the window of the Starbucks. They want to loot the Apple Store, and so you've got this layer cake of three completely different movements. You know, one of whom is legitimate, and two, frankly, I would argue, are not legitimate. Um, and so I think it's okay for us as citizens to say, I'm all for the first one, peaceful protest. Where do I sign? But the other two, I'm not okay with that. Um, and they bring a different kind of risk. Um, and, and it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a challenge to, to like you said, keep your perspective um, on the fact that risk is risk. It doesn't really matter who caused it where the tire iron meets the head. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, something that, <clears throat> you know, at a certain point, uh, so the why is incredibly important in understanding how to avoid situations, but in the moment of, you know, where the rubber meets the road and you're the one that's, like you said, getting cracked in the head, the why kind of becomes very secondary as far as the, the list of priorities go, right? Oh, very much so. You know, very much so. It's uh, At that point, it's a matter of risk mitigation no matter who started the march, um, you know, especially as, you know, some of the uh, methods used by the uh, agitator kind of class are quite dangerous, you know, concrete shakes and things like that. I mean, caustic chemicals are very dangerous, and, you know, you don't – that may not be very high on my list to uh, prepare myself for, but, boy, can you get hurt by a, a, a glass full of wet cement. Um, and so that's a, a different kind of risk math. You know, you need to ask yourself, I know that these protests are compelling and people want to sort of be in the action, but how much is it worth to be close to the fire if you get really hurt? Um, you know, we got to ask ourselves, is, is it worth it just to be a, a, a spectator? Well, and and that's an interesting question. We've 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 got to go to break, um, and then we can 
sort of delve into that a little bit more. Uh, right now we're talking with William April from April Risk Consulting. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy-day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. Legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the EDC X9 series of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics and concealability with modern service pistol capacity, as well as reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. Now, before the before the break, um, you were sort of discussing whether or not the risk of harm was worth being a spectator at one of these events. And so I'm a, I'm of two minds on this, right? And and I'd be really curious to get your thoughts. Because you know, at a certain point <clears throat> you know, how important is social consciousness and how how important is being involved in your community in a positive way and how important is it to you know, try and affect positive change uh for you know, something that you believe in that that's like one competing idea, I guess, versus why well, I don't want to get hurt. And right. And, you know, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that I have an answer for anybody. I, I, I think we could both agree that that's an intensely personal decision. Um, and I would not project my math onto anyone else's. But I certainly understand and would not, you know, blame someone for getting hurt, I guess, in one of those environments if they felt the need to do it. If we go if we go to, like, you know, Farnham's stupid places, stupid people, stupid things, inside of our community there's this whole, well, you get hurt at a protest, you shouldn't have been there. And I think that that's right. a, a very myopic answer. What What do you think? Well, I think, you know, momentous events are attractive. We want to see what's going on. I mean, if you get to look at the first draft of history, of course you want to be there. It's just compelling. But, you know, then you've got, um, you know, to, to, to think about what, what's the, the, the relative value of having had that experience. Um, and if it does go badly, it, it doesn't mean it was a bad decision but it does mean you embraced a certain level of risk and can't really complain about it if it backs up on you. Um, so there's, it's a, it's a real risk analysis. I mean, to be in the front lines of, of history is really something. I mean, if, you know, D-Day was happening, it would be really tough not to run to the top of the ridge and watch. Um, you know, so I understand the, the pull of, of, of dramatic moment, momentous events, but really, you know, the, I think we've got to stay mission focused. What is the point, you know, uh, to you know, make it home safe and sound. That that should be pretty much priority number one, um, and that has to be balanced in there quite a bit. Yeah, and I wonder too is, is like especially people inside of our community look at things, and oh no, you, you're exactly right. Well, a lot of there are a lot of people out there who say, you know, I'm operating on a zero risk model because I'm a self defense guy. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no such thing as a zero. There's no such thing as a zero risk model. 
know, the only way to have a zero risk business is to close it. Um, so, you know, to have zero risk in your life, you'd, you'd never leave the house. And, and that's certainly not the image we want of, of, of gun guys and people that are interested in self-defense is somebody sitting in his home scared to leave, peeking out the blinds yeah. because he might encounter some risk. I mean, the reason we take an interest in self-defense is so we can go where we want to go and do what we want to do and see what we want to see in a way that lets us contribute to our own safety, um, not hide at home, peeking out the blinds like the weird guy. Right. Well, and the other thing that I was going to say, too, is that almost everyone that I'm aware of can look at actions and go, well, the amount of risk that you assume doing this makes complete sense to me because I believe in what you're doing. But then you watch someone else do something that maybe you don't agree with, you don't feel as emotionally attached to. And it's like, well, they're making dumb choices. And and the best example I have of that is like, you know, if you look at the, the silliness that's gone on in Virginia as far as the the gun laws that have been pushed there. And then you look at like the Second Amendment rallies that have happened where you've got thousands upon thousands of armed people gathering in one place to protest the actions of the government, which I completely support, right? Sure. But the people that do that, and I, and I think a lot of folks who do that understand that they are assuming a level of risk, Right. But I actually think there's a ton of people that did it that didn't think they were assuming any risk at all in doing it. And and I guess the only reason I'm bringing this up is to introduce ambiguity into the conversation so that maybe people can think about it a little more deeply, if that makes sense. Do you, do you oh, kind of... no, it does. You know, I, I, I do get you. I think the, you know, the interesting thing about events like, like those is that you'll get people that really haven't thought it through. They think they have a notion of what the law says, but they may very well be breaking some sort of local ordinance or state capital law with what seems like a perfectly normal request to them, and then they're not understanding why they're getting arrested. Well, um, you know, there's, a, there's an element of, of what I call uh, exhibitionist rights at that point. Uh, to say I want to wave my gun in your face to get your attention is a little bit like a voyeur, uh, like an exhibitionist saying, you know, I want to wave my weenie in your face just to get your attention yeah. uh, because I can and I think that gives uh, the, you know a lot of reasonable gun owners and reasonable protesters of government uh, uh, quite a bad name. Um, it just it's a bad look. You know, it's shoehorning one issue into another, um, and and I, I don't think it, it's entirely helpful. Right. You know, I get the you know my rights anytime, my rights all the time. You have to respect them. Yeah, but you know your rights also have limits, and to you know shove them in somebody's face for your personal gratification no matter what the cost to a movement that I might find important, that's, uh, that's pretty rude. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, a little, a little courtesy from all of us wouldn't hurt. Well, and indeed. And the, I guess the other concept that I'm trying to sort of like pull at or the thread that I'm trying to tug at, because I think you'll have fun running with it, is the idea of moral righteousness inside of a movement and how that affects what non-criminal individuals on either side would do in a normal situation versus what they would do if they feel morally righteous and also wronged. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. What, what you get, like if you read Jonathan Haidt on The Righteous Mind, once it's become a matter of righteousness, you no longer have to argue because my rights are non-negotiable. I don't have to argue. Mm -hmm. Well, that takes an awful lot of issues off the table in a way that's very problematic. 
um, you know, there, there, there are very few issues that are literal, moral, right and wrong. There's quite a few more that are gray areas of negotiation. But people want to use rights as a sort of a trump card and that to shut down debate rather than have debate. Um, and that's, um, you know, it's, it's a way of making the debate more and more tense because you're not just attacking my position, you're attacking my moral basis. And that really, uh, that tends to get the heat up really quick. Um, you know, so, so removing things from the table of even being possible to debate them is uh, very dangerous because it leaves us nowhere to go. I mean, conversation is the only real, you know, method forward. We have to be able to at least have enough of conversation to hash through some of the stuff because we just, we don't agree on some of it. I mean, they, you know, I, I understand there's principled opposition to gun ownership, right? I'm, I'm all in favor of that. Certainly not mandating anybody have to do what I like. Um, but to say, you can't do what I like because I disagree with it. And I think that's wrong. And I think it cuts both ways. So I guess with, you know, and we were sort of discussing this at the beginning of the show, how there is all of a sudden, <clears throat> I guess, violence floating around from unexpected sources would be, you know, a simplistic way to view it. Or Yeah, the way I call it is there, there's more ambient violence out there than there's you. been in quite a while. Um, just, the, just the air feels thick with uh, angry tension in a lot, you know, in a lot of different directions. And uncontained aggression is a dangerous thing because it can turn a crowd very, very quickly. Um, and a crowd can go from safe to not safe almost immediately, like a bad surf. You know, the best example I have of that is a personal experience, and it was something I had never experienced before. And it was it was really, well, one, it was really uncomfortable. I didn't want to be there when it happened. Like, and mm. and, and what was what was like analytically interesting about it though is like a student of this you know this sort of the dynamics of interpersonal violence was i was at a regina specter concert um which you know people are going to be like what and it's like i like regina specter it was a good concert but you know for she would she would be considered uh by anyone listening listening is like an extreme like lefty sort of you know political viewpoint right and what was interesting about it though was that one the show's going fine and at one point or another you know musical artists they they talk about a song before they play it or something like that and the the convert there had been a, a school shooting or something you know a week or two before and it came up in the show and, you know, then then politics came up kind of and, and I am like paraphrasing all of this, but but essentially Trump came up, you know, and what was interesting to me was how the mood of the crowd turned extremely and like no one did anything. And it's not like anything violent happened, but just like in the air, there was violence all of a sudden. And that's the only yeah. way I have to describe it. Right. And I also, in the air there was violence, and I knew that despite my own personal beliefs, which, you know, just they wouldn't have mattered because I would have gotten lumped into the group that the crowd was violent towards, um, like if it had gone that way. Like if people knew, and like no one knew, but, but and, and this is like an extremely clumsy way to say that 
it's it's weird how there can be a palpable shift that way. And and I kind of like to get yeah. I kind of like to get you to to talk about that a little bit, but I have to take a break first and then we'll we'll hop right into it. So hold hold your thought and and I'd really love to hear what you have to say. Right now we're talking with William April from April Risk Consulting. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at Easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. This segment brought to you by bigtechsoutdoors.com. Bigtechsoutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the lumens from Modlite at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and need an RMR on your carry gun now? Well, bigtechsoutdoors.com has those, and they're not going to say anything about your life choices. Glock accessories? Yes, fast, cheap shipping. 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with William April from April Risk Consulting. And I had sort of talked about how there's like this weird experience where this intangible thing suddenly becomes tangible. And I, I don't know if we could if you could discuss that a little bit, what that is. Well, I think everybody's felt it. It's hard to describe, but you know it when you feel it. Um, you'll be in a bar or something, and suddenly the air turns um, toward violent. You can feel that there's an intensity crack. There's sort of an electrical energy in the air. Uh, sort of people are seeking um, outlets for aggression. You can feel the ambient tension rise. Uh and when it, when it happens in a larger crowd, it can be much more serious, much more quickly. I mean, you know, a crowd of a thousand people can stomp someone to death in 30 seconds. Uh, and so it's a dangerous, uh, it's a dangerous thing for that aggressive spark to, to get generalized in a crowd like that, especially seemingly out of the blue, because you don't know what started the conflict. Uh, all you know is that suddenly everyone's angling toward this, uh, you know, physical mode of aggression that's, uh, really dangerous, and you can feel it happen. I know exactly the feeling you're talking about. So how do we – I mean, and it, it's difficult to try and discuss, like, an esoteric concept like that where and, – and I don't know how much – I don't know how much literature there is or research there is on that subject, and I, I certainly didn't, you know, tell you ahead of time uh, that we were going to talk it, about it. So it, I, No, I, not at all. It, it, it is strange to have – a feeling that's hard to describe, but once you've felt it, um, there's really not much going back. Once you've felt it, you'll never unfeel it. And it's a it's an important uh, cue that we've got to learn to pick up on because what you'd hate to have happen is you're not sensitive to that wavelength, standing there not realizing that a crowd is getting more and more hostile, that the crowd is getting more and more brittle and prickly, and all of a sudden you're the one getting sucker punched and not really understanding how we got here. Um, so this is a real time of listening to your own self. I mean, our sense of people's demeanor is what do we feel in their presence? Are they sad? Are they angry? Are they hostile? What is their demeanor? And keeping your eye on the demeanor of a crowd is even more important because the power of a crowd, which is the physical raw power of a crowd, is life-threatening in and of itself. Uh, even a crowd that doesn't have a set image of we are going to stomp this guy to death can do it by accident. Uh, it's just an unbelievable amount of power. And so we have to listen to how do I feel at this given moment. The things just feel bad. At that point, second-guessing it is embracing a grave amount of risk. 
And so when you feel that kind of risk, it's time to cut to the edges and move. So how much do you think, you know, this is an interesting time in history, but how much of the ambient violence that's floating around do you think is more of like a byproduct of like multiple con- convergences, I guess, of weird events, you know, between like this is the first time in living memory inside of the United States that we've had a pandemic to this level, right, to yeah. where where the measures that are being taken. Like so my my grandparents or my great grandparents who I've never met, like this would be something that was familiar to them because they dealt with it before. Um, Spanish flu and things like that. Yeah, exactly. But like for us, like this is a new thing entirely for, for almost everybody. So, and, and, and go ahead. One thing that it really does is if you think about it, each of us has a tank, if you will, of resiliency, right? The ability to take a blow, uh, you know, and, and recover and come back a tank of resiliency. Well, being locked up for months and months and months and being under financial stress and maybe not making a mortgage and maybe the bill, you know, your business goes under, those things drain your tank of resiliency. And then, you know, daily stressors come on and there seems to be, you know, hell going on in the streets and you just don't have the ability to, to take that, take those blows of daily experience and recover from them. Um, and so there's more stress on us and, and less resiliency to help us handle it. Um, it, it's, it's, it can be really, you know, it can be a, a really unique sort of perfect storm, um, because we're, we're, you know, we norm, we're normally wired to have a crisis, recover from it, have a crisis, recover from it. But now it seems like we're having a layer of crisis on crisis on crisis. And there doesn't seem to be much in the way of relief coming from any direction. Yeah. So it, it puts everything on a, on a sort of a hair trigger, if you will. And those hair triggers make things dangerous. Um, you know, there's like you said, it's like a rubber band. The, the tighter you pull it back, the more tension it's under. The the greater the uh, the impact can be when it finally does go. So this is a really you know uh, unusual and um, uh, let's say a hopefully unique situation that really won't recapitulate itself. Well, and it's interesting too. So like personally, I can say with almost 100% certainty that so far we're we're in a July now. Um, but just, just objectively, like 2020 has been the worst year of my life. Like, like, yeah, it's, it's been a bad one. Yeah. Like professionally, um, personally, and you know, it, it's been intriguing, um, just because, you know, from, from like an introspective standpoint, like watching the, the poor decisions I've made, uh, and, and the good decisions I've made, the, the good coping mechanisms, the bad coping mechanisms, things like that. And, you know, watching myself go through that and and being kind of interested in it from, like, an outside observer's standpoint, but then, like, thinking about everyone else going through that as well and, and sort of, like, circling back around to the ambient violence question and and just, like, how that affects everything and whether or not it changes the the math on how we need to interact with people. You, you see what I'm saying? Oh, I do very much. So, you know, it's the funniest thing, you know, when you talk to, uh, you know, people about how, you know, how's your lockdown going and all that sort of thing, it's easy to say, well, I'm doing okay. But even everybody who says they're doing okay, can't leave the house. They may have lost their business. They may have lost their job. Um, you know, there's all this stuff going on and, and everybody's ambient tension level is up. 
Plus, we're getting fewer and fewer social cues from each other. There's, you know, people walking around with masks on. And so it's harder to feel connected to people. You know, if you sort of nod at somebody on the street, you don't really know if he's smiling or, or anything. Um, so it's it's harder that we're, you know, we're, you know, herding is a very strong urge, right? Animals want to be around like animals. And yet what are we being told to do? Get away from each other. Leave each other alone. So it it, it leaves us with fewer and fewer um healthy modes of interacting with each other while we're all under tremendous tension. So it's it's a particularly bad pile of, of features to have happening all at once. Um, uh, you know, we need people and yet we can't get close to them. We need information from people and yet we can't see their faces and understand what they're doing. So it's just a, a much more atomistic, isolated way to be, which is the last thing on earth we need when we're under stress. Well, it seems like too that, you know, and then we layer in and, and this is like the third piece. It seems to me, and I'd be curious as to your thoughts on it, but it seems to me that election years are always slightly contentious due to the nature of what's going on and how people are. Sure, but yeah, and that's but you know that's ramped up. You know, I'd say a hundred percent in the in the current context. I mean, right? Yeah, you know, that's just um, you know, last presidential election, there was no question that there would be a riot or something after the you know after the, the election itself. But this year, uh, you know, last election, well, there kind of was, um, you know, it's just a much more contentious election cycle. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that it changes over time. I mean, um, uh, the, you know, there, there's a, you know, very much dedicated us and them uh, dynamic working right now. And it's, um, you know, us versus them is a pretty dangerous place to put the rest of us. What if you're not, a zealot really on either end of that, of that curve, you don't really have a home right now. Yeah. It's just about everyone will hate whatever you say. <laughs> well, because, you know, as the two, as the, as the bimodal curve spreads out and there's virtually no common ground between political beliefs, what do you do if you're not on either end of that curve? It really leaves you without a home. Well, and, and that's actually been really interesting too, because, you know, due to the nature of my work, I, I deal with a lot of people that would be on the right side of the political spectrum um, I also, due to some of the work that I've done with like the sex worker community, am in like firmly speaking with the far left side of the political spectrum, right? And what what's intriguing to me is whenever I'm interacting with either, I'm like, you've got reasons that you are going to blanket judge me for and probably dislike me over, which it, which is like a strange position to be in, right? And and I'm like very much a, you know, someone described me as a granola libertarian, which actually made me laugh. But like, I, I'm very much like, hey, why don't we just all get along? Like, let's let's work at that. And and it doesn't seem like there's very much room for that in in today's really. world. Um, which you know, it, it is a little bit unnerving the first time you find yourself judged and disliked for something someone else thinks you think. Yeah. Um, that's really an, an intriguing amount of, uh, you know, you're, you're, I hate to use this term, but you're, you're sort of literally being profiled and that's a, that's a very uncomfortable feeling. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the, the line by Eminem, you know, I don't care who you are. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm not sure that hurts any of us, but, uh, you know, people are so quick now to, to buttonhole people because it's easier than trying to figure out what they really think. I know that you think this, that also means that you must think that. And I don't like that, so I don't get to, I don't like you. 
Oh, yeah. that's kindergarten thinking. I mean, you know, we're all grown-ups, and and that's kindergarten thinking. That, you know, we just have to work on expunging. Right. Um, we got to go to break, and then I I have a. Um, you'll see. Anyway, uh, we're talking with William April from April Risk Consulting. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Centurion Arms, hard-use rifles and accessories at easy day prices. Visit them online at centurionarms.com. So we're talking with William April from April Risk Consulting. And so something that I want to say either... You used a term once at one of the things of yours that I was at, and I, I think it, it might have been uh, EDP, uh, the, the Establishing a Dominance Paradigm, uh, which is an excellent class that, that you and Tom Givens and, and Craig Douglas generally do once a year. But I, I want to say it was the term murder buttons, and it might not have been you that said it. It might have been someone paraphrasing a concept that you had expressed but just the idea mm-hmm. that everybody has specific buttons that that pressed in the correct sequence under the right set of circumstances uh, will essentially get them to act in a violent manner, right? Someone will kill someone over <laughs> something else, and and yeah, pretty pretty much. What I'd like for you to do, if, if you're willing, is discuss like your traditional thinking on that. Or, or your, you know, your research on that, or thoughts on that, and then maybe compare it to if any have been added in the current world. Does that make sense? Well, here, yeah, you know, of course, yeah. Here's the biggest, you know, uh, danger of it. We get our capacity to use force to commit murder to kill from our ancestors, right? We're all genetic winners, and we have genes of genetic winners. And the ability to kill back in the wayback machine was a powerful. Um, was a powerful thing. Uh, people, you know, the our ancestors that couldn't kill didn't survive to pass on their genes. So we've got a pretty healthy set of, of killing genes, and they need to be um, inspired to be put into play nowadays because we're, we're sort of more advanced. But it's a little bit like an app on your phone that you don't use. Um, it's still there. You just don't use it. What really uh, makes for a risk profile nowadays is that our minds are able to meld just about anything into an existential threat. Uh, if the midbrain is activated enough by something, the the brain can come to perceive that thing as a life and death need, and life and death needs get fought over to death. Um, that's why drug addiction is so powerful, as it takes over the middle the middle part of the brain, the limbic system, and convinces you that if you don't use drugs or don't drink or don't act out this addiction, you will die. And so suddenly, heroin becomes a matter of life and death. Well, if you can subsume political beliefs and maybe spiritual beliefs, things like that under the rubric of life and death, then suddenly you'll find yourself willing to fight to the death over universal basic income or something like that because it becomes not just something I think, but something that's part of me. And so if you disagree with it, you're attacking me as a person, and I get to respond to existential threats with existential force. So things can go from the political very quickly to the personal, physical, and lethal uh, in in a way that seems shocking to the outside eye but actually makes perfect sense. It's a, it's a kind of conflict being co-opted by the structure of the brain, and we're tricked into believing that it is truly life and death, uh, even if it's just you know a, a pretty esoteric political issue. Um, so that that's the kind of danger that that is a sort of a floating um, 
risk uh, level that you can never really predict in other people. You don't know how seriously someone takes a subject until you see what they'll do when they're involved in it. So, and this is going to sound like a weird question, but I actually think more people should think about this because so we're all we're all the heroes in our own story, right? But how important do you think it is to like take a deep examination of yourself and go, here are the things that could conceivably push me over the edge to where I do something that is against the logical framework I have of who I am as a person. So I guess, I guess like a simpler right. way to ask that would be, how do you recognize you are getting too close to a topic and perhaps, you know, putting a murder button right in front of yourself? And, and like, I, I almost hesitate to like ask that question because people are going to be like listening to this and going, did John just ask how we don't become murderers? But I mean, yeah, like I'm, I'm curious because I don't. Pres- well, if you, Go ahead. You know, if, you, if you think you're not capable of committing murder, you're wrong. The people who provided your genes to you were perfectly capable of committing murder. So you have that genetic function. You can do it. Now, hopefully we don't, but it's in there. Like I said, it's an app on your phone. You just don't happen to use. Um, but it's, um, you know, the danger is I, I like to ask people, you know, are you willing to kill for the thing you got engaged over? Are you willing to die for the thing you got engaged over? Because that's the ultimate stakes. In any human conflict, there's uncertainty. And you might get involved in a conflict feeling perfectly fine and wind up getting killed. I, I wrote a little piece on Instagram the other day about a man who had engaged in a three-way fight in uh, New York City and tried to break up a fight. And not only did he not break up the fight, somebody else saw him trying to break up the fight, punched him in the head, and he got pushed over the uh, tracks on the Harlem uh, subway and killed. Now, I'm not sure his family would agree that was a good use of his life. And so, and yet he got involved in an activity that killed him largely that I bet he had never contemplated doing in his life. Um, it just felt like the right thing to do. And we've got to put more thought into it than that. Well, uh, you know, asking yourself a strange question, what would you kill for? What would you die for? I should hope that list is very small. Well, and so here's, here's an interesting thing. Um, you you posted another one that was essentially a neighbor that was a pastor killed his two next door neighbors because they were using their hot tub uh, nude, right? Essentially, and and the reason why I bring that up so more so than you know like the high responder low responder you involve yourself in, a, in an event and there's a, a negative outcome. I'm more curious right now while everyone is tense because like. I've I've even I've even seen like the the communications that people I consider to be reasonable and friends of mine are using is ramping up in a in a really interesting way. But but what I'm curious about is, you know, do you think that pastor ever thought that he would shotgun his two neighbors to death because they were skinny dipping in their backyard? You you know what I mean? Exactly. I do. And that, and that's that's the the risk of what I call patterned conflict. Where you're conflict with someone at these low levels all the time, uh, the enmity really grows pretty quickly because every day feels conflictual. Um, and you, so you're not fighting about anything in particular. It's just every day makes the tension a little worse. And then one day there is the last straw, unquote. And, and at this point, you're so entrenched in who's right and who's wrong that any response seems legitimate. 
this person is terrible. They've got these years of history of antagonizing me, and and suddenly anything I do seems reasonable, even murder in a hot tub, which is pretty shocking. I mean, you know, you would think beforehand that the pastor's risk of ever committing homicide life risk would be very, very low, but he's locked in a conflict that he's not interested in either getting out of or resolving. And so every day it gets worse and worse and worse. And um, if you don't, you know, you're not, that way every interaction doesn't start afresh. I don't see you in the driveway and say, hey, John, what's up? We start on eight because we already have this history behind us. Well, starting every interaction with your neighbor on eight is an obvious risk. Um, and so it's, it's, that's what happens when risk is uncontained. When people don't take an interest in minimizing it, it's sitting there waiting, ticking like a, like a time bomb. So, so I guess what are the steps that we take to acknowledge that and, you know, maybe derail that eventual, like possible, and, and sometimes they almost seem eventual negative outcome. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the hardest things for people to do is revisit an issue where they are sure they are right. Uh, but I have a universal skeleton key for these conversations. If you walk up to your neighbor and say, hey, Bob, I've been thinking something. You know, we got off to the wrong foot a while ago, and there's all this tension, and I don't like it. So what do you say we, we take things down off the boil? What do we need? Do we need a fence? Do we need, you know, do we need hours of hot tub use? What do we need? The goal should be not to have the conflict, not just not to kill each other on any given day. Um, and so, you know, it's, it sounds, well, why should I have to do it? I'm, I'm the good guy here. Well, yeah, but if you're the good guy and you wind up getting killed or killing someone in your hot tub, I'm not sure I want to change places with you. I think it's worth a little pride to resolve these kind of conflicts before they turn the way you're talking about. You know, this kind of ambient toxicity in our lives is really dangerous. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, if we want to be safer, we have to address it. So how much of that do you think is predicated on being able to make the decision like, hey, I don't need to be right anymore. And, hey, I don't even need to win. You, Boy, that's tough. You know, those are, those are two very mature statements to say what I need is to be okay and have the life I want to have, not to be right. Well, that's a, that's a big ticket item for most people. Um, and so to, to let go for a lot of people feels like backing down and eh, there's all pretty strong strain out there of people who, you know, aren't going to bend the knee and all that stuff. I always ask, well, what's the value of being right? You know, that pastor's in jail right now having murdered two people. Is he happy that he's right? I bet not. And, you know, how much carryover do you think there is? for that general concept to just interpersonal relationships inside of our own lives as far as um, just like maintaining the relationships with people that we have. So not like in a, not, not from like the, the perspective of violence overall, but just like quality of life overall. Do you, do you see what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. Well, you know, one of the big problems is that admitting that we're wrong is a pretty you know, requires a pretty good objective sense of yourself, and it's harder than it sounds. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of uh, grow up thinking, you know, I'm going to value my opinions, and I'm not going to back down unless I have to. But, uh, you know, we gotta, what is the value of conflict that we're stuck in? And if you can't point your finger at a discrete benefit that you're getting from the conflict, 
I don't, I'd have to ask, what are you trying to do then? You know, what I always ask people to talk about intervening is, what are you trying to win? If you're trying to win the Bystander of the Year Award, well, okay, but that, that, that brings a lot of risk with it. Um, so, you know, sitting down in a cool room, drinking a glass of water, thinking, what would I die over? Meaning, if I died doing it today, and my family would say, yeah, that was an authentic gesture. He's the kind of guy that is just going to do that. And I'm sorry that it killed him, but he's that kind of guy. Well, okay, that, that means that's an authentic gesture. But getting killed over someone else you don't even know, fighting with someone you don't even know. I don't think my family would look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's a good thing that that happened. Um, so the list of things you would kill and die for is something that you got to sit down and really think about. It feels kind of morbid, but um, you got to know how you're wired because your nature gets a vote. And if the circumstance that activates your instincts, your protection gears happens in front of you, you're going to do what you're wired to do, whether it's a good idea or not. So it's a really important um, thing to know in advance what is going to activate my need to intervene? You know, there are people out there who have incredibly strong reactions to, uh, you know, children being hit or, or women being hit or things like that. And if that's going to be a switch for action, you need to know that in advance. Uh, we got to get in alignment with how we're wired so that we're not being surprised by our own actions. What am I doing running towards this fire? What, what, I want my feet to go that way, not this way. Yeah. Well, your ass gets a vote, you know. And um, it, it's going to do what it's going to do. And so it's important to get in alignment with that first and foremost. Well, I've got more questions, but that is the end of the show. Um, Lay it on me. Well, you know, well, that, that's the end of the show. So we're, we'll, we'll leave people wanting more. I, I always think leaving people wanting more is, uh, is, a good, uh, is a good place to be. But if people want to come take a class with you or read more uh, about you know, your view of things that are going on or just in general get to know you better, how can they do that? Well, they can go to aprilriskconsulting.com, which is A-P-R-I-L-L, riskconsulting.com, or I'm on Instagram under the same name, April Risk Consulting, and I put up little nuggets to think about every day. Put the same stuff on Facebook under April Risk Consulting. So it's a good way to sort of get, get a little dose of mindset every day and think about our thinking and what's going on out there in the world, and, and uh, then uh, follow up and think about uh, taking a class if it's something that interests you. Perfect. Uh, thank you again, sir, for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. And we actually get to record another episode here in a second. Uh, but through the magic of technology and stuff, it'll be a week for everybody else. But, uh, I had a great time. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And, hey, keep leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes, if you think we've earned it. really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe and see you next week.